This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is March 23rd, 2023. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Good show last week, Scott. Thanks to you and to Stuart for filling in while I was traveling Alberta. Thank you, and uh, yeah, thanks for the uh, the work that went into the uh, the weeks before that show that uh, I wasn't able to uh, participate in. It's a good interview. Yeah, thank you. Uh and I survived the Rogers Pass, even when there was a snowfall warning, which was, you know, the unpleasantness of driving BC mountains during spring. Uh, the rest of the drive was great, and we did not die, clearly. Uh, so that means I'm here today, and we can talk about how literally nothing is happening in BC. Like, M- MLAs are on spring break for the last two weeks. Uh, you talked about a few things that came up last week. We dug and found, like, half a story that will bring you on British Columbia. And then we'll just go to federal politics, where the big news is there's one fewer liberal MP. Uh, and we'll talk about why and all the other things that are going on that are just, just great. Um, sports show at patreon.com slash politicoast. I do this often enough uh, that I should be used to asking you for money. But we could use the sport to keep the show growing and reaching new listeners. Let's talk about British Columbia. Uh, as I mentioned, legislative break. They'll be back next week. I checked the calendar. They'll be back basically until mid-June, I believe, or May, and then they take their summer break. So there's still a few more weeks of legislative sessions left. But as I scrolled the list of like BC government news headlines and through our BC Today newsletters that are still great, it's a lot of just happy day for the inner elimination of racism and discrimination and uh, you know as you celebrate it how you will and happy ramadan and you know a few like small funding announcements here and there but nothing that screamed stuff is happening in bc politics Uh, literally the only story that i think is worth noting here is a follow-up to a previous one which is that that um amazing recall petition we talked about against uh, Premier David Eby and his home riding in Vancouver Point Grey, uh, it's officially failed. This is the one that said he had broken the Nuremberg Code. What a shock that that failed. Like every other recall petition, pretty much. It was never going to go anywhere. Not that I would expect people citing the Nuremberg Code in a recall, politi- uh, recall petition to have a uh, great sense of uh, how things actually work. Uh, un- <laughs> oh, they did. I, I thought Elections BC didn't post the numbers. Um, they did have... Oh, yeah, they don't have the number of signatures collected, but they did have 271 voters register as canvassers to collect signatures which actually isn't nothing. Um, I thought they only had 271 signatures, but because they were nowhere close to the whatever 16,000 signatures or whatever was required for that, um, they did 
yeah, 16,449. Uh, they're not even going to verify how many signatures were uh, collected. And so we don't even know how many they got. Um, I will say a big credit to BC Liberal Press Secretary Andrew Weave for tweeting out in response to the news that this failed. Uh, good. Say what you want about David Eby, and trust me, I've said lots. The man is not a dictator, nor was he seeking to violate the ethical principles as laid out in US v. Brandt and the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, disagree with the guy. He's not like a war criminal. By any stretch. So. It's silly we even have to say that. But the uh, whole thing was silly. Uh, speaking of... It's, it's like it's not silly season, but it's like just, I don't even know where we're at with this story, but let's just talk about the continued uh, China foreign interference stories. We have a bunch of, uh, a couple little stories at least, and then like a major, you know, the scoop for this week. Uh, let's go through kind of in chronological order. Uh, we got the mandate letter for the special rapporteur that you talked about with Stuart last week. Nothing really surprising in here. David Johnston uh, will be responsible for assessing, quote, the extent and impact of foreign interference in Canada's electoral processes, including by examination related information, including by examining information related to the 2019 and 2021 federal elections to determine what the government did to defend Canada against electoral interference. Uh, he will identify any outstanding issues and report back with any recommendations, including whether or not we should do a formal public inquiry by May 23rd. So he's got, what's that? Two two months. Two, we, two months exactly. Fine. You know, I mean, you talked about this pretty extensively with Stuart, and nothing's surprising in these uh, mandate letters other than the date is nice to see. I mean, the one thing here that's interesting is just like building off of the discussion you had with Stuart the one like hesitation I see around the public inquiry, besides the general politicians don't want to do them because they get out of hand, like we saw this in BC, where the NDP even didn't really want to do um, inquiry on money laundering when they didn't stand to be harmed too much by that and didn't end up being harmed at all. Um, the one challenge I see federally is whether a public inquiry can actually get to the facts we need to understand what's happening, given so much of this is in, you know, highly classified CSIS documents and public inquiries, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago with uh, Paul Champ, it don't always get access to even cabinet privilege documents, let alone, you know, national security documents. And so maybe the one advantage of a special rapporteur is he can have the clearance to have those conversations in camera with so to speak, with CSIS and get a better understanding that he can relay publicly without giving the facts away. Uh, it's not as satisfying, but honestly, a public inquiry may not be as satisfying either if we don't get the facts. Yeah, it's it's an imperfect solution and one that we didn't necessarily need to be circling around at this point. This is this whole thing has been pretty much mishandled by the government from day one and the reason why the public inquiry has become such a focal point of this all is because the pm and the government never gave the impression that they were taking this seriously and they 
And the message they sent through all of their actions were basically, we don't want to talk about it. We don't think this is worthy of our time or and consideration, uh, which the fact that the report now also pointed towards them being the beneficiaries of the alleged interference all kind of came together to undermine the trust in the government. And it, it turned a, hey, maybe a few agents of Beijing spent some money that in a way that wasn't entirely in line with where Canadian laws are on this and maybe made some uh, social media and WeChat posts to try and influence things. And it took that, which is fairly contained, uh, and turned it into a what did the prime minister know and when did he know it uh, continuing scandals, quasi-scandal, major issue of concern, and that going off the rails is how we've ended up in the process where like, we're almost certainly going to end up something approaching an inquiry because of that and because they picked a special rapporteur that is has some issues with perceived independence that's going to narrow either his range of motion in terms of what he can he feels he can recommend or will potentially poison the well when it comes to the actual report and that's something the PMO screwed up again in this. So like series of of missteps all the way along has basically ended up where everything is headed towards an injury and that may not have been the best approach. I don't want to relitigate your conversation from last week entirely because I think it stands on its own is pretty good. But I mean, I do think it's understandable why, and I want to touch on this, why Trudeau and, and the Trudeau government acted as you know disinterested in this issue as they have and it's the simple politics of just they have a mandate or a perceived mandate or a goal of doing certain things of achieving certain things as government and anything else and we see this how every government acts these days is a distraction you know the bc government wants to focus on the things they ran on and promised and doesn't want to do other things that exist. And it's only when things really blow up like COVID did or inflation is doing that you get knocked off course. And we saw initially, like, I think Sam Cooper had a story in November, or even earlier, about possible, you know, CSIS leaks and interference, and it didn't really go anywhere. So from the government's point of view, if those media stories don't get traction, kind of, you know, deny, dismiss, push off, and then bring the attention back to the thing you want to do is a, you know, it's a reasonable calm strategy. It works most yeah, of the I, time I, for them. And they misread it this time. The, the, well, the problem isn't that they misread it. It's that they, that could have been great for like three days. But by day four, it was very clear this wasn't working and that it was actively not just not working, but going through the process of that was resulting in the perceived integrity of the previous election being uh, in the minds of Canadians, being further undermined. And it was doing like active damage at that point. And then they kept on for like another 10 days or something um, like that afterwards. And that's really where the mistake, like, yeah, like I get the, 
it was not great. They probably should have handled that better. Uh, and this used to say with hindsight that like day one, they didn't handle this great, but it's more days four plus where things went increasingly off the rails on that, where the, the, the real issues were and where we kind of really got locked into this course of action uh, on all of it or seem to be locked into heading toward that course of action of an ultimate inquiry. Well, and one of the places where they have changed course, at least, is you mentioned last week, just briefly with Stuart, that they were trying to block Trudeau's chief of staff, Katie Telford, from testifying at the, I think it's the Foreign Affairs Committee that's studying this issue. Uh, they reversed course basically like after you hit uh, stop recording. It may have been like after you hit publish. Yeah, it, was it may have been after you hit publish, but yeah. Uh, anyway, she's going to be at that committee at some point. Um I was saying to you before we hit the show, they kind of like have set a new precedent after SNC-Lavalin where political staff are now, you know, fair game for these commons committees to go, whereas previously it was the minister who took was the like end of responsibility and staff weren't always put in the firing line because it's in many ways unfair to them, but you know, as we saw with SNC-Lavalin and in a number of other cases with this government and other governments in this country, uh, ministerial responsibility is possibly a thing of the past. Yeah, like, it's in theory the thing that our system of government is largely based on, uh, the responsible government model. Uh, but yeah, that's taking quite a few shellackings in recent years. And yeah, it used to be ministers actually resigned when bad stuff happened in their governments. Uh You'd be hard-pressed to find an example of that recently. In fact, the the notable times where ministers have left, it's usually because they were insufficiently deferential to the central office rather than, oh, they screwed up something big and now there's an actual bit of accountability for that. So yeah, something had to give somewhere and um, that ended up uh, being the fact that when the political situation really does get to the point where somebody needs to go before parliament and somebody needs to be held accountable. It, uh, it's ended up falling on the staff and yeah, that's not great from like a theoretical, how our system's supposed to run. And like, it's where like this point has repeated every course of politics for the last month or something. They came out, but like, yeah, it's a serious change in how things work here. Um, that said, the uh, the dilution of ministerial accountability has also coincided with the fact that they actually don't have as much control as they used to. And if everything's going to be run through the PMO, then, you know, maybe haul in PMO staffers rather than uh, ministers who they take uh, who just get their marching orders from PMO might make more sense. Yeah, I don't have strong opinions on whether or not she should go there, to be honest. Uh, I think we saw with the SNC-Lavalin hearings that the people who are senior bureaucrats at this point and see senior political staffers are, you know, as smart uh, in at and savvy, I should say. They're, they're obviously smart, but as savvy at navigating these kind of questions as the ministers and the politi- and the politicians themselves. So, like, did we learn anything really 
out of the SNC-Lavalin hearings when uh, the staff were there that we didn't know otherwise? Uh, did it change much in terms of how that played out? I mean, the Liberals kind of treaded water through that and survived it. So maybe they finally realized, you know what, it's fine. She's She's quite capable and can manage this. So let her go speak and then we don't have to be beaten over the head with this on top of everything else. Yeah, it's as we're known, this is yet another case where the liberals will drag out the inevitable and spend, you know, a week taking a beating on something before they finally relent and kind of get to the place everything was going to end up anyway. And I mean, a lot of strategy when it comes to how to deal with crisis or crises is to not drag it out, put like, just get as much, get the bad stuff that's eventually going to come out, out, and then move past it as quickly as possible. And instead, this has become a month long, I'd say probably more than that, but uh, ordeal where they're just bleeding every day and they've pled for a week on whether or not uh, someone from PMO is going to testify and they were never really going to be able to run the clock on it. So ideally they shouldn't have tried and everything would be a little less worse for the government if they'd done that. Also, they did that like the day after they might have even been the afternoon after they announced the special rapporteur. Like it basically undercut that thing right away for them to go rather than turning a page, we just show that they were never really left that page of we don't actually want to talk about it. I don't think anyone was other than the like political wonky nerds were really watching the Will Katie Telford testify story versus like I think the special rapporteur still got the headlines and this was a side story that people I mean like the poli- the opposition parties cared about but and some of the reporters but I don't think it got the coverage possibly but like they would have appeared like the headlines beside each other in news uh on news websites and whatnot yeah it, it's always hard to tell what the public pits up and what doesn't but you know it was not the nice clear message frame that uh, well, the opposition like motions did manage to make a clear statement, and the House of Commons has made a statement in endorsing an NDP motion uh, calling for a public inquiry into foreign interference. The NDP had previously passed a version of this at the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, which is a non-binding motion. This is also a non-binding motion. It basically says that the House should adopt the committee's recommendation, uh, launch a national public inquiry into allegations of foreign interference in Canada's democratic system, including but not limited to allegations of interference in general elections by foreign governments. It wants the committee to have all the necessary power to call witnesses from government and political parties. Uh, It should investigate abuse of diaspora groups by hostile foreign governments. It should have the power to review all documents deemed necessary, including documents related to national security. Uh, It should have the individuals selected to run it agreed to unanimously from the House leaders of the recognized parties, uh, sorry, Green Party of Canada. Uh, And finally, the inquiry does not stop or impede the House of Commons Committee's study either. Um, It's interesting to me that this is a general, uh, like a broad, all foreign interference. I think that's a positive thing. It's definitely like 
you know, China's the center of this story, but that's not the only country operating in the world that has or potentially has interest in Canada. Um, and that it would hopefully be able to have national security documents would also be great to make it at all effective. Um, but as I said, this is a non-binding motion, so good luck. <laughs> yeah, the, the non-binding stuff's not great. Uh, it is good. They're looking at casting a wide net. Um, there have definitely been like rumors around, um, I think, was it the Iranian government trying to influence the uh, the ETSPAT community within Canada? The Indian uh, government is definitely active. I mean, we see that one of the other stories this week I didn't put in here, but uh, Jagmeet Singh has been, his Twitter has been blocked in the Punjab region. region so I imagine there's a lot of pressure uh, on Hindu and Sikh uh, individuals in Canada from, you know, with ties back to India based on just the internal politics there. So like, a lot of countries have diaspora com communities in Canada and there is pressure on them. Yeah, that passed. Uh, I don't think the Liberals are really going to pay any attention, but uh, better it passed uh, than I not. I did find it interesting the NDP was trying to celebrate this as, you know, this passed despite attempts to block it by the Conservatives and the Liberals. And I think the Conservatives may have tried to amend the language to their own preferred thing. Maybe I don't know exactly, but I think they may have wanted to stick it a little bit more tightly to China. Um, specifically, but uh, I think you know neither of us is opposed to this motion as it was drafted. Anyone can wordsmith however they want. Uh, what was fun was one of the votes in favor of this was Han Dong, who until like, I don't know, yesterday, a couple days ago, I've lost all track of time, uh, was a liberal MP, and he's not now. Yeah. It was the same day the story was released, so let's talk about the story, but I, I actually wanted to talk about who this guy is first, because I don't think most Canadians, I definitely had not ever heard of this MP. I mean, there's 338, so there's a lot I don't know. Uh, Han Dong was a Liberal MP elected in 2019 for Don Valley North, re-elected in 2021. Prior to that, he was the member of Provincial Parliament for the Ontario Liberal Party for Trinity Spadina from 2014 to 2018. Uh, he was born in Shanghai, moved to Toronto at 13 with his family. Uh, as a politician, he's been the co-chair of the Canada-China Legislative Association. He had a couple, I think, parliamentary secretary profiles as MPP, but like he's on a couple committees federally, which everyone is, and otherwise is like utterly unnotable. Like, no offense, there are a lot of like backbenchers who don't have strong CVs, but I, there's, you know, He's a guy from Toronto who got elected as a liberal. There's only so many of those who get prominent roles. But yeah, he was first in the news actually a couple weeks ago because one of the, I think it was the Globe and Mail uh, exclusive, alleged that CSIS was concerned about the nomination process he underwent for uh, Don Valley North liberal nomination in 2019, including allegations that. Um, busloads of Chinese seniors and for, uh, uh, international students from outside the riding were driven in to uh, weight it in his favor and that Dong was the preferred candidate of the CCP and, you know, the Chinese government. And 
like the busloads of people coming to a writing nomination is such a like cliche accusation in Canadian politics, especially for like marginal, you know, immigrant communities. I'm sure you've probably heard that allegation leveled against like three or four nomination races you've been around. I definitely have. Oh, yeah, no, it, it's super common. The uh, the Vancouver version of that is uh, busing in seniors from Richmond, uh, and like it's a yeah, a like you said, a cliche in terms of discussing uh, people trying to uh, do everything they can to win a nomination. And nomination races in Canada are not like bastions of clean democracy by any thing. If there's somewhere we need to look at. Um, ways to improve our democracy that might be a good place to start they are as long as we don't go like full primary like the u.s does because that has its own problems yeah i like i don't have good suggestions offhand but like the parties are running them themselves often the like local constituency associations are just running them themselves and this is like four volunteers who showed up to an agm and didn't say no so like, you know, they're doing their best, but it's a weakness. Yeah, volunteers with mixed experience and quality. But none of that is to say that foreign powers necessarily have strong incentives or concerns with it. And, you know, Dong denies those allegations against him and says he was duly elected. I mean, he was elected as an MPP, so he seems like a guy that the liberals would want to run like he's not an inexperienced politician he was only a one-term provincial politician but you know people run for federal politics with less um but yeah the bigger story this week is from sam cooper in the global news uh he is citing two separate national security sources who both allege that in 2021 dong had a phone call with han tao who is china's consul general in canada and Dong apparently asked that China not release the two Michaels uh, who were captive at that point, pretty much hostage until we released Meng Wanzhou. Less, and Dong's reasoning was that it would benefit the conservatives if they were released. Uh, he did ask as well that China show some progress on the cases to support the liberal government. Um, but really, the accusation here is that he was kind of acting as a back channel undermining the like public word of the liberals but maybe like running well it's not yeah. even necessarily that he was acting as a back channel that like he was maybe freelancing this advice it's unclear definitely yeah the the pmo says they didn't know about this conversation until reporters started asking them about it but like we started the segment off with like who actually knows what the pmo knows and is willing to uh say on this so yeah the the uh the pmo it doesn't have a huge amount of i think goodwill banked on this story so like nobody's taking them too too seriously but yeah i don't it's hard to yeah say. dong admits that he did have this conversation with the consul general but he says when he brought up the michaels he called for their release at every opportunity uh, and he also called the allegations in the story false, misleading, and slander. Um, later that day, as the story was blowing up, 
He resigned from caucus. I think that is completely understandable. And whether he was told to by the PMO or he was smart enough to realize as a backbenchy MP, you don't become the center of the news. And if you do, you get yourself out of there. Yeah, it's MPs stepping out of caucus while there are allegations being worked through is something that happens with some degree of frequency and for allegations less serious than the ones made here. Um, it's a little more challenging because unlike a court case, there isn't necessarily going to be a like clear definitive result at some point on this. But like the basic thing of stepping back from caucus is hardly unprecedented. And the Globe had a story just as we were set to record uh, that the Trudeau government was given a transcript from CSIS of this conversation. The Globe and Mail has not seen this conversation or this transcript. And as far as I know, Sam Cooper neither has seen this transcript, but he has talked to people who have seen it. Uh, the PMO says they found no actionable evidence when they saw this transcript a few weeks ago when approached by the Globe, uh, I guess deeming that he didn't say anything completely out of line. Uh, the Globe asks, you know, why didn't he res resign as soon as the question started being asked? But I think that's kind of a ridiculous question. It's like, why would you draw, like, MP resigns from caucus for no reason? <laughs> that At that point, it, yeah, you, you make the story bigger, not smaller. If you do it, like, f immediately before anything actually gets reported out on it. The thing that gets me here on this whole story is, it's like, it... It doesn't follow in my mind. Like, if Dong did try to make some, like, case that in his mind would, like, be politically better for the liberals because he thought China would prefer a liberal government over a conservative one, like, releasing the Michaels was always going to look good for Trudeau because he was being beaten over the head with, why can't you get these two out? You know, why aren't you doing enough? Um, unless his like goal was hold them for a bit longer, but release them like as an October surprise before the next election, which hadn't been called at that point, but was being teased. Yeah, there's like, like you can can talk to a few other versions of this. Like they're trying to get a rally around the flag effect, or like, hey, we can't afford to change course now. Uh, in this moment of crisis. Neither one are super convincing, but I don't know. Back, backbench MPs don't always have like the greatest political uh, sense. So, like once again, who knows? This is all. There's not enough information public to really make a like a definitive call. And the other thing this. I find ironic about this specific story is this isn't actually foreign interference directly. This is a Canadian telling another government what to do. This wasn't, like, I think the undercurrent here so, is that China viewed him as a stooge, essentially, and maybe he recognized that enough or was sympathetic enough that he thought he could leverage that relationship or something. But, like, just on the face of it, this is him trying to, I think his words were, like, support his constituents or something or, like, do the right thing. Um, but it like, it literally isn't China putting pressure on Canada. 
No, but it's bad in a completely different way if these allegations are true. Like, at that point, you have a sitting politician working or trying to work with a foreign government against the interests of uh, two Canadians who are being held hostage and arguably the country overall in order to gain a narrow partisan advantage on that. Like, that is real bad and like gets very close to the treason line. I'll leave it to the lawyers to figure out which side of that it was, but like it it's a real bad allegation when you like look at it. Uh, but yeah, it is a different allegation. Like yeah, it the if the sources are accurate, it's that he's either dumb or like quasi treasonous or both. But it's a weird story. It's just it just feels weird to me. Like as you mentioned with the like minimal amount from we've gotten from these leaks it's it's really frustrating this entire thing and frustrating is not even like the right just like because so much of it is being covered with such hyperbole i feel like that's what i think is frustrating me more than anything it's like we have little leaks of things that don't tell us enough to do anything with but then you get headlines of like he's secretly advising Chinese diplomats, and it's maybe <laughs> I don't know, and maybe we'll never know because CSIS has apparently got a bunch of rogue agents who've decided to go to the media rather than run the official channels and feel like we're being played. And you know, maybe even a public inquiry won't get to the bottom of it, maybe it will. All our all our hope is with David Johnston these days, the like most boring man to become governor general in quite a while. Like that was his that was the thing when he got elected. Is like Stephen Harper picked someone really boring because Kretchen tried to like pick a bunch of exciting people, and no, Harper picked this like dorky academic. Oh, I mean, he was qualified. It's <laughs> I think kind of indicative. He was qualified. Like Pardon? I'm not saying he was bad, but. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it kind of goes to, like, how the various parties think about uh, the governor general and whatnot. And, yeah, it was a, a very kind of, yeah, conservative pick in the uh, general sense of the word rather than the partisan sense. I want to talk about something else next week, though. I hope the BC government introduces some good bills. Well, we should have a budget, shouldn't we? And uh, a Biden visit that is coming up and if i bothered to check the calendar before recorded may or may not i would know whether it happened before or after we were going to be recording that biden week. is literally at justin trudeau's house today i saw that picture on twitter ah okay so there will be stuff coming from that to talk about though they will probably get questions on this too let's talk about our last story our quick take story from pierre polyev while we're on federal politics this week uh, he was in BC this week doing another round of announcements. I saw a reporter in BC today. He's been in BC every month pretty much since winning the leadership, or at least quite recently, uh, quite smartly highlighting that it's, yeah, the pathway for them. Well, the uh, only path, yeah, the only path to winning um, involves flipping a bunch of seats in BC and, other, and the GTA. Uh, and he wants to build homes. 
So yeah, made sense he spent time here. And he wants to build homes is his new policy. Yeah, so one of the things he announced while he was here was a housing platform, or at least the start of like a housing plan. It would be fair to call it uh, still a bit of a work in progress. And, uh, but basically, this is largely building on the ideas that uh, the Conservatives ran on in 2021, uh, basically tying federal funding to cities getting serious about getting rid of the barriers to housing, plus a tip line, a NIMBY Yeah, tip I think line. some of this was also in Polyev's uh, leadership um, platform. So yeah, uh, get the city of Vancouver would be required to increase yeah. home building by 15% annually, or there'd be financial penalties, including funding, federal funding withheld. The, the NIMBY tip line, so specifically, we will empower residents to file complaints about NIMBYism with the Federal Infrastructure Department. When complaints are well-founded, we will withhold infrastructure dollars until municipalities remove the blockage and allow home building to take place. I cannot see this solving anything on that one particular. Also, like, a whole bunch of the thing that gives NIMBYs the, the power is their, like, is using the apparatus to, of the various processes to, like, raise a bunch of complaints that then have to be addressed and whatnot. And, like, may, like trying to balance that out with a different thing is just, like, seems to be doubling down on the same, like, fundamentally flawed thing of let's add more process here rather than, like, let's make the process easier to... Uh, let's create a level of bureaucracy to, to deal with all of the levels of bureaucracy that we say are in the way. Yes. In fact, yeah, so they, they talked about imposing a NIMBY penalty on big city gatekeepers. Uh, and to do this, they will hire a bunch of bureaucrats to be gatekeepers around how NIMBY a place is supposed like, to be. The only complaints that I can feel will be substantive that this would, you know, would come through won't be from like average residents who are like, oh, those neighbors are complaining about trees or something it's going to be developers who have a detailed understanding of the impediments to them making their developments and you know i don't want to go through this paperwork and sometimes those will be justified sometimes those might not be but this is a weird way to try to address it like i get the populist rhetoric around it but it's fun to see conservatives lean into the idea of creating uh, administrative tribunals they're great. I love them. I actually do. Fun uh, is not the term I would use for it. <laughs> but yeah, they're also going to uh, provide bonuses for municipalities that uh, boost home building, uh, require that uh, cities that are getting federal funding for transit and other things uh, allow high density housing around transit stations, which is yeah, solid, great. It was in their 2021 platform, and good to see them carrying that on. Does that actually? I think one of the biggest some of that has even been in liberal rhetoric this. federally. Like it's pretty universal at this point. It's like the specifics vary, but it hasn't. It, it's been becoming done the yet. consensus position. The fascinating one here towards the end is to sell off 15 percent of the federal government's 37,000 buildings and require that those be turned into affordable housing. Uh, this immediately raised the question for both of us, where are all the buildings the federal government owns? Uh, unsurprisingly, most of them are in the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. 
Uh, a num- another chunk are in the Department of National Defense, and Parks Canada also has a whole bunch, and Canada Post. So, yeah. So, Fisheries and Oceans has the most number of properties, whereas National well, we should Defense say, has the most a buildings. database. We will link it in the show notes. It's amazing. There's yes. a map. You can find every federal building in your uh, local area. I'm sure this will only ever be used for good. <laughs> but yeah, like DFO fisheries buildings are obviously like Coast Guard type things and uh, dry docks and things. Those things that won't. Yeah. A lot of like harbors and small craft and yeah, small. Probably vessel, not good housing uh, options. And whatnot. Uh, same that probably like- goes for the Department of National Defense and Parks Canada and even Canada Post stuff and all those Service Canada locations, in which case we're starting to really narrow down the buildings they can sell off. I also just always get a little bit uneasy about just like, we're going to sell off X percent of you know government assets when we get in, because those are hard to acquire. And once they're gone, they're often gone. At least here, there's a plan to do something with them specific. Um, Although in like, Canada has no shortage of crown land. So like, yeah, maybe not the biggest set of assets to be concerned about. In terms of like selling off government assets, like real estate would not be like the top of my list on like the oh, at least for the federal government yeah. stuff. Uh, at least at the federal level, yeah. Even cities are a bit of a different beast, but uh, yeah, federally, uh, no. But um, yeah, also there's like not that many federal buildings in the city of Vancouver, and you take fifteen percent of that, and you, you're looking you're not at like doing two buildings, a huge amount in the grand scheme Maybe. of things. Maybe a few more, but like, it doesn't hurt, but it's not tra- revolutionary. Uh, maybe the revolutionary idea here is the final one to stop printing money. Uh, would not be a poly of... Uh, Gotta blame the Bank of Canada, right? Policy thing without that in there. The incredibly fuzzy thing about what, like, whether it's like Bank of Canada or like federal government spending or like, yeah, that like standard talking point also made it in here. So yeah, it's a policy of some like broad consensus ideas, some you know ambition. He's and I'll say this: like Polyev is good at identifying the problems and concerns people have. Like when he talks about housing and affordability and the overdose crisis, he can I you know narrow in on a challenge and even speak to it in terms that people relate to. Uh, and then I, you know, often disagree strongly with his proposed solutions. In this case, I this is fine. Other than the selling off is a little weird. The gatekeeping language I don't love, and the NIMBY hotline. But like overall, fine. None of this is bad. It won't hurt. It helps a bit. I'd love to just see the federal government actually print money to build houses. Because that they can do and would actually help on top of this. Well, I mean, if they're printing money to do that, that would actually be bad because it would be inflationary. But more resources into that would be good. Like the money goes into like the money that would be spent to do that would go to like suppliers and land purchases and everything. And like it would still filter out into the economy. You're just doing like printed money to do that. It would still also just increase the money supply for a fixed quantity of goods. Hence inflation. It's a policy. 
uh, we'll see what, you know, we'll keep our eye on what the other parties are doing on housing. Uh, if and when we ever get election, I'm sure we'll see more policies from the others. But I guess we won't be having an election until we know that they are free of foreign interference. <laughs> Probably. Although the way this government's handled it, like, I would not bet that they wouldn't roll the dice. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.